Stop starting, yes. Uh, right, my name's Phil, I'm a member here at Trinity, and this is our uh, sixth and final session on church history. And it was only the first five centuries, though I'm sure those have been before, it felt a lot longer than that. Uh, let me start with uh, a quick word of prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet once again this Sunday to consider those acts in the past that have formed uh, and help us to understand uh, the scriptures better. Uh, we ask you now that you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start with a... This is the sixth session, the final one. A brief recap is... I'm going to do a, a recap at the end of the six weeks, just to, and it's not going to be six weeks worth, it'll just be a, a very quick shuffle through the bits that we've covered. Um, we left it looking at Augustine and Constantine. Their baptisms caused a problem in the sense it didn't, either the infant baptism that was postponed and the adult baptism which was postponed, it's very difficult to translate that into our modern understanding of baptism. We'll come on to that in a section, in a se in next se section. Um, the person of Jesus Christ. And again, it's one of these questions that we probably think, well, that's fairly straightforward. But as I've hoped that I've demonstrated over the last... Uh, previous five sessions, that these doctrines developed over time. They didn't just pop out of the Bible when it was agreed upon um, to, to actually come out as a formed uh, theology that people just accepted straight away. Last week, we spent some time, and the week before, looking at uh, the issue of the Trinity and how long it took to settle that. The Trinity is clearly stated in the Scripture it's the church formulating uh, its understanding that collectively they can agree upon. Um, at that point, the two sections, uh, the, the fact of the Trinity that we know, of course we have 19th century uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they both fail in the Trinity question that Arius uh, caused a problem with the church. Looking now at this, as soon as the church has sorted out his position on the Trinity, of course, they become unsettled on who Jesus was, uh, the deity of Jesus, uh, and the question of his humanity arose. Uh, the early church then struggled to understand the humanity of Jesus. So having established that he was part of the Trinity, he was co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, how do we handle his uh, humanity? Um, Nestorius, uh, a bishop of uh, Constantinople, desired to assist the church in this dilemma, and his desire was to defend the divinity and the humanity of Christ. So he ended up speaking as if two persons resided in the body of Christ. Um, this was hotly... Uh, I don't think he actually stated it as clearly as that, but in his writings and his discussions, this was the logical conclusion of wh where he ended up believing what he claimed to believe. Um, Cyril, the Bishop of Alexandria, and if we've learned nothing about North Africa, they don't seem to let anything get past them. They're very hot on these disputes. Um, 
he attacked Nestorius over this view. Um, he insisted that Jesus must be viewed as a single person. Now this dispute eventually was resolved at the third ecumenical council. These were the big ecumenical councils. There were seven in all, uh, which combined uh, the, the, the big events. There were minor uh, councils held locally, but if they couldn't resolve things locally, they inevitably got sent up to the, uh, the great council in that sense. It wasn't as formulated as that, as we think of it now as a structure. It was just a natural progression. Let's take this to Caesarea. We'll sort it out there. And if it's still not sorted out, they end up having to create these big ecumenical councils. Uh, this one was at Ephesus. At the same time, this is the problem with church history, because things are going on in different directions at the same time. Uh, uh, Eutyches, uh, he took the opposite view. So as Nestorius had the two persons residing in the one Christ, uh, the uh, grouping that uh, Eutyches formed, was, was, he didn't form it, it formed sort of around his views, a monophysites, is it mono? Monophysites, P H S I T E S, monophysites, something like that. <laughs> that they, they actually mixed up the humanity and divinity elements in the one body. So it was the exact opposite error from the Storius. Um, it then was resolved. In about 433, a compromise uh, was uh, reached in which the church declared that Jesus was the one person with two natures. Uh, and that is a position that was then uh, resolved at Chalc Chalcedon, 451 AD. Um, now, this was the fourth ecumenical council. Things didn't move that quickly in those times. And perhaps it's a good thing that they didn't uh, in that sense. Uh, this was invoked uh, uh, by the Roman Emperor um, Marcion. Um, and it was held in this uh, town situated now in modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople, Byzantium, the original names, on the uh, east coast. Uh, it's split by a river, isn't it, to the Caspian Sea. Um, now, this uh, council was held in 451 between 8th of October and the 1st of November. It was attended by over 520 bishops, which was the largest congregation of bishops in these great ecumenical councils. Um, and the principal uh, point was to sort out the preliminary uh, position taken at Ephesus. There were still rumblings on, as we found in other uh, areas, in uh, the Arian controversy, it rumbled on for a good 60 years before the Second Council actually came down and sorted out what we call the Nicene Creed. Um, at 451 uh, Chalcedon, we end up with the Chalcedon Creed, which we have used, I think, at Trinity once. Part of it. Part of it. Um, 
just to go back, I'll, I'll remind us at the end, but we've looked at the Apostles' Creed, which we use fairly frequently. We've used the Nicaea, which we use frequently, and I think this one or part of it has appeared. And the bit that they agreed upon was quoting from the original, that, uh, not from the original language, of course. Uh, I struggle with my own, never mind uh, the Greek or the Latin. Uh, Teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. And I think nothing else that truly God, truly man is what sticks in our memories from the creeds that we've talked about uh, in, uh, in worship service. As with any other, we're, not, we're, we're finishing with this here, but it rumbles on and this issue goes into the great schism when the Eastern Church, we think of the Eastern Orthodox Church, eventually separates from what we consider to be the Western Latin Catholic Church. Uh, that was 11th century. So whilst there's an agreement, whilst we have a creed, there are still factions that hold to differing views, and these things just rumble on for some time. One interesting little uh, side issue, which I've lost in my notes, so um, is that Ephesus was uh, where this third council was held. They had historically a pagan allegiance to the uh, female uh, Greek god Artemis. Artemis, that sound familiar? Testing you to know. <laughs> Do you know your scriptures better than I obviously don't? <laughs> I don't know how Greek God <laughs> But it was an issue, I believe, in the, uh, the New Testament uh, Acts uh, uh, with this goddess. For some reason, and I, I don't know why, but there seems to have been a knock-on effect in that the Ephesian Christians, and we're talking hundreds of years later, have taken an affinity to Mary the mother of Christ. And I mention this is because this is where you see the origins of Mariology, as we'll call it, which is very significant, especially in the Roman Catholic Church in that sense. Um, Nestorius, I think, offended them by trying to change the description, the description, uh, description of the original phrase was that he, uh, Mary was the mother of God or the bearer of God, and he wanted to change it to a Christ-centered, the, the, bear, the bearer of Christ. And they took offense at that, which probably didn't do him any favors when they met uh, for the council. That's just an aside, because the, uh, one of the recurring things I've tried to talk through in these sessions is that things don't just happen in a bubble. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, let's worship Mary. <laughs> let's get some new statues made. These are old. It happens in time, and there's an origin somewhere. And usually, the origin is quite boring, but because it hasn't been challenged. So Nestorius, while we were criticizing for his view, incorrect view of the person of Christ, he obviously was concerned that Mary wasn't mother of God. She must have some, it's this linkage through maternity in that sense. Is she in fact a God? And you can see how these 
links start to build up. Back to Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, and uh, one of his famous, he's got a few famous quotes that we'll touch upon. Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. I'd hope that we could all find comfort in that sentiment. That sentiment is found in the second paragraph of the first chapter of his Confessions. This is a mature Augustine reflecting back upon his life. And we have, as I mentioned last time, great detail about his life from his own accounts in his record, in his words. Um, we pick up on his life story. We question the postponement of the baptism um, where Monica, his mother, deliberately delayed his baptism uh, from infanthood. Um, and this was because, in his own words, there was a fear that the efficacy of the baptism was a once-off event. So the washing, and we, it relates quite often to John 3, 5, uh, when Jesus talks about, uh, unless you're born of water and of spirit, um, this washing was seen very literally, um, not that they physically washed the sins away, but the sins was this one act of the application of this sacrament. Um, so they were put off the baptism, so that in your life, you might sin again, and they weren't quite sure how they were going to deal with that sort of issue. And uh, there's not a lot of writings I could find that real, give a real explanation. The problem becomes, obviously, it infers that's a question about the practice of the baptism of infants, but we also see it a few years earlier, 20 years earlier, um, of the death of Constantine. Constantine, who was converted in 312, then puts off his baptism to the best time, which is just before you die. And when he's feeling really ill, he calls for a bishop, and a friendly bishop comes along, and he is baptised just before he dies. It's important for our understanding that whilst the practice of baptism the mode of baptism, the subject of baptism isn't in question in these times. It's consistent throughout the whole of these five centuries. It's the meaning of baptism that's obviously somewhat skewed. That the meaning that Constantine used to put off his baptism to the end was the same that Augustine's mother used on him to put his off. Uh, and I've got some little pointers that might help us understand it. But uh, Augustine, he's brought up in a classical education, which is a, a Greek philosophy. It's the Latin language. He doesn't take much to Christianity, which is his mother's faith. He sees it as a, a very simple faith and possibly not intellectually challenging enough. He's quite derisory about the Christian faith, although he has been, as he says, He's been catechized since the womb. So he, he has a fair understanding. He's been brought up in this semi-Christian uh, home. Semi in the sense of his father was a pagan who gets baptized on his deathbed. But that's another issue. 
Um, again, from the Ambrose's own, uh, not Ambrose, Augustine's own uh, autobiography. He takes up teaching, and that's unsuccessful in North Africa, and then friends of his convince him that there is a market for good speakers in Rome, and he goes to Rome to pursue uh, a career in rhetoric, this public speaking, public arguing, philosophical arguing, uh, very much admired in the ancient worlds. Arguably, you could say, rhetoric was important until fairly recent terms in, in most societies, until now, when 148 characters on Twitter is all you need to do to say about anything. But it was very highly praised uh, in, in those times, and they were very much highly sought after. It was a top profession. And it was a profession that both his parents were encouraging him to move towards. He gets offered uh, a, a prestigious post into Milan that he takes. Uh, and whilst in uh, Milan, he comes across the great preacher, the Bishop Ambrose of Milan. Um, now, he had a bit of a reputation uh, as, a, as a good speaker. And obviously, Augustine wasn't so uh, entrenched in his views that he dismissed everything. A good speaker was a good speaker, no matter what they believed. He went along, and he was very impressed. Uh, it says a profound effect upon Augustine. And Augustine realized that Christians can be both eloquent and learned. So intellectually, he was stimulated by what Ambrose was saying. And I would suspect that Ambrose began preaching on an issue that was important in their times, but particularly important to, uh, this is my speculation, um, but on uh, being chased and watching out for uh, lustful desires, keeping oneself away from temptation. Because this is a recurring theme through um, uh, Augustine's life and the difficulty that he has. On with the story, back home in his villa, um, he was reading Athanasius's life of Saint Anthony, who was a hermit. We've not talked about hermits or monasticism. This was a, a growing uh, sideline where people, men, would withdraw from the society to pursue this aesthetic lifestyle that brought them closer to God. Because if you removed yourself from people, that was a, a great area in which you could commit sins. And if you could just focus upon God, you removed these problems. I'm obviously generalizing and, and uh, making it a lot simpler than it was. But it was this purposefully away from sinfulness and focusing upon God. So again, Augustine is reading material that's in his thought stream that's important to him. This is when he hears children playing in the next garden, or on the beach or wherever. He couldn't see them, but he could hear them, saying, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege, which is probably pronounced wrong, probably, and uh, meaning take up and read. And this is the famous story where he, he looks over to, I said, a coffee table, but they didn't have coffee then, but you know what I mean. And there is a scroll of some sort, open Romans 13, 13. And we're getting this detail from Augustine's 
life story in that sense. Um, and this is where Paul is, again, the admonishment to avoid immorality. Augustine himself considers that's a point of his conversion. But in fairness to him, he also he sees three types of conversions. Now, we need, when we're looking back at history, we need to try and understand what the people meant as best we can at the time when they said what they said. Uh, it's not that Augustine was advocating that we have three conversions. He was identifying three episodes in his life that were significant to him that you could look at from different perspectives as being a point of change, shall we say. The first one was, he would say, he identified as his intellectual conversion, which we can identify with that. You've heard something being spoken. The second one is the change that it brought about in his lifestyle. So we, we've, we've not gone into too much graphic detail, but he was uh, an unmarried father at 18, uh, lived a life of, of uh, promiscuity from 16 onwards. Um, so he sees this change that's been brought about in that sense. But the most significant uh, is that he believed that uh, his conversion was uh, sealed and finalised uh, with his baptism. And so he, he identifies these three events. His baptism, I think, would have taken in the Easter following uh, th this episode. After being baptised, and he was baptised at that time with uh, his 17, 18-year-old son, um, Augustine uh, returned uh, to North Africa in 388. Uh, sadly, around this time... Well, the nice part, Monica, who is very highly regarded, uh, a great Christian woman of example, constantly prayed and chided her son about his department from the, the faith that she brought him up in, actually made it across to Milan, and she was uh, apparently there uh, and was able to see his conversion in that sense. Uh, but on the way back, or there or thereabouts, both... Uh, his mother and his son both die, which again, in the times that they lived, that was just a normal, common thing. You could catch, catch yourself on anything and you could be dead within the week because there was no antibiotics, etc., etc., etc. He gets back to North Africa. He becomes uh, a, a minister, a presbyter, or a priest. Um, interchangeable, that's why I use it, it doesn't go all three, it's uh, interchangeable phrases. We tend to sometimes get hook up on words that we like and we become disdainful between words that seem to reflect a different religion. They were words that were used quite uh, indiscriminately at that time. Uh, four years later he was made a bishop, a bishop of Hippo, uh, again in, in modern day Algeria and that's where he uh, lived out the rest of his life, actively being involved as a pastor to his congregation uh, and a prolific uh, Christian writer. Uh, most of, I think, most of his writings we still have. That's um, the life of, uh, it's, it's an abbreviated, very short life. We could do all six sessions on Augustine. Very, very interesting character. He's known as the... Um, uh, the Doctor of Grace, 
Uh, he's also considered to possibly be the father of the Reformation. He's he, that highly regarded. Um, we talked about Donatists. Um, this was an issue again. We looked at it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. It was a split uh, in, uh, I think it was Carthage, um, where a group were unhappy with a bishop that was put upon them who they felt had been ordained by a triatory, a traitor to the faith, a man called Felix that they claimed had given up scriptures to be burnt or destroyed during the Roman persecution. Uh, the charges were laid and investigated and found not to be substantiated, but the Donatists were unhappy because they knew best in that sense. The great uh, embarrassment uh, was that this was the first split in the church. It's not an overstatement to say in the five centuries that we've been looking at, the church was one Catholic universal church. Towards the end of this period, we're seeing wobbles coming through in the Greek side, and they're not happy with certain things. But generally, for these five centuries, you have a church that is broadly united, and they come together as a united church to deal with issues like the Trinity, to deal with issues uh, like the person of, of, of Christ and, and his, uh, uh, that sort of level. The fact that, that, that came out of, of this dispute with the Donatists was a Latin phrase that you might see if you look into church history and, and just theology generally. It's the Latin phrase ex opera operato, meaning from the work performed, and usually in regard to the sacraments, especially baptism, it is inferring that it is God who is behind this act, not the person who is receiving or the minister who is the agent performing, in that sense. I don't mean performing in a rude sense, uh, but he's the actual agent who's actually administering the sacraments. Uh, the Donatist position was the opposite. They said it did matter. And in our modern language, it would be considering an elder who had performed baptisms of, of whatever persuasion, um, and he was disgraced for whatever reason. Removed from office, the question is, are the baptisms that he performed then, because he's now been disqualified, are they still valid? Or do we need to rebaptize these people? Uh, and that was the crux of this issue. The Donatists, if you were persuaded by their arguments, you would be rebaptized. And, and that was something that the church wasn't particularly keen on. They wrote uh, about how we shouldn't be doing that. Um, this great embarrassment, and, and I can't express, express it enough, it was an embarrassment. How can you preach that we're one united church in Christ and we've got these people just wandering off over here? Um, long story, I keep saying long story, I have to condense everything down for time. Augustine made efforts to win these people back. Um, and even though he was this great speaker, great, great um, uh, letter writer, 
of course, he was in the wrong party. And if you're not in the true church, how can you help us that are in the true church? That's how the Donatists saw themselves. They were the true church. The Catholic Universal Church was outside of that position. Unfortunately, it ended badly. And again, that we see one of the consequences of Constantine the Great's conversion is that we then have a new card in the game. Originally, we just had persecution by the pagan Romans against the Christians. Now we have the church and the state being closer together and that you then have the church actually using the state to enforce positions. Whilst Augustine wouldn't have known the outcome of these decisions, it would have ramifications, you think of the Crusaders, on and on and on, where the state gets involved uh, in exercising the authority of the church in some ways. Famous character, the next controversy is a, we don't know much about Pelagius. Um, he first appears in about AD 380 in Rome. He's believed to have been a British, a Roman British monk. Again, an aesthetic, meaning he was very serious about his religion, very pious. Um, we would almost very straight-laced, didn't like anything that wasn't so. Um, when he went to Rome, he was quite shocked by the morality of the Christians in Rome. Now, bearing in mind, I've emphasized his, the fact that he was basically a, a hermit type, so it wouldn't necessarily take much to excite and to make uh, him question loose morals in that sense. It's, uh, um, it's, it's an indictment on ourselves, perhaps, as we see these things. But he actually mirrored a famous monk, Augustinian monk, in 1510, Martin Luther, 1511, when he went for his first trip to Rome, and he, again, was disappointed with what he saw there. So it's this expectation and reality that was a shock. Pelagius, who was a contemporary of Augustine's, had read his confessions... And he took particular uh, exception to a phrase, give what you command and then command what you will. We'll come back to this later. But he took this to be a deviant theology, um, uh, contrary to a biblical understanding of both grace and free will, and believed that such teaching turned man into a mere robot. A um, number of times I've been called that in my life. Um, Pelagius believed that a man uh, had not been entirely corrupted by Adam's fall and that he could, by his own free will, do works that please God and thus be saved. Uh, this meant that Pelagius was challenging uh, what we know as the doctrine of uh, original sin, predestination, uh, grace. Um, grace is a difficult word because... Every Christian grouping understands the word grace in their own understanding of the word grace. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a word that, uh, to the Reformed, is, is quite special. Um, but we have to be understanding that other uh, groups, Roman Catholics, would understand the word grace and would use it quite freely 
in their understanding of the word grace. Um, Augustine uh, took on, uh, when, he, when he heard that um, Pelagius was uh, taking up this position, um, basically he destroyed his arguments. He, he upheld the biblical principle of total depravity and grace alone. And the stress point is on the word alone in that sense. Um, the problem, uh, Pelagianism itself, when I say destroyed, it, it virtually disappeared in that form. Um, and it was condemned as a heresy in about 418. Um, it did, however, resurface in what's known as imaginatively semi-Pelagianism. And it's the halfway house of this Pelagian idea. And again, to not stray into theology, but just to keep to the history, where you, I have to give you an indication of, of what they're talking about generally, it's this idea, uh, we would be quite familiar with the phrases of monogism and synergism. Monogism, in terms of salvation, indicates that salvation is brought about by God alone. No outside agency, God saves of himself. Synergism has many different forms and it involves a cooperation of sorts between God doing his bit and man having to do his bit. And the stress I would make is on the word having to. So God effectively does this, you need to do this to complete that action. And again, sadly, um, once being declared in itself a, a heresy, at one of these smaller synods, I think it was the synod, second synod of Orange in uh, uh, southern France uh, in 529. Um, it's still with us today. The Roman Catholic faith group uh, are semi-Pelagian. They see very broadly, and I hope not inaccurately, but baptism brings you into that first stage. That's what God does for you. And then you're having through the working of the sacraments to work out the other little bit. Eastern Orthodox have a similar semi-Pelagian view. And sadly, a lot of Protestantism falls foul of semi-Pelagian thinking in terms of salvation. But Augustine primarily is known for his fight dispute with Pelagian. Uh, Pears, I like to be a bit obscure. Uh, again, another famous story about, and given as an indication of the way in which Augustine is approaching these ideas. We have the benefit of these ideas from his extensive writings, but I would argue... I don't know how successfully, but I would still argue that it gives an indication of ancient man and the way he went about thinking about things. It, it, we quite often end up with the answer, and we might have an inkling of what the problem was, but we don't necessarily know how he got from A to C. We presume it was B, but we don't know because we haven't the detail. I think with Augustine, we have a, a bit more detail that helps us 
to understand the theology that we can then have confidence to rest upon when we come to the uh, Reformation and, and areas like that. The story about the pears is that uh, as a 16-year-old, and he is 16 because Augustine tells me he's 16, he and some friends, uh, these would have been young adults then, they got married at 14, so uh, they, were, they were men in that sense. Uh, they went for a bit of uh, fun. They uh, entered their neighbor's, uh, Augustine's neighbor's garden and stole some pears. Um, Augustine, reflecting upon this, he appreciated, if you remember way back when I talked about Alexander the Great, the effect of Hellenization upon the world, which was the importation of the Greek language, Greek philosophy, Greek culture. We talked about the, the writing of the Old Testament scripture the, uh, into the Septuagint, the 250 BC or thereabouts. So this impregnation of Hellenization affected Augustine because he was brought up as a, in, in a classical system. And the way that evil would have been understood as I understand it, and I'm not a philosopher or I'm not even a historian, um, that the evil would have been expressed in terms of that he loved the pears more than he loved the neighbour from whom he took the pears. So to, to address the problem, he needed to love, to avoid taking the pears, he needed to have loved the neighbour more. It was this idea. But this troubled, obviously, uh, an aged, converted um, Augustine, who said, well, we didn't actually eat a lot of the pears. We sort of threw them away. And actually, the pears that I had in my own garden were both sweeter and better. And he came to the understanding that he actually delighted in the stealing of the pears. It was doing something that was wrong that was actually his motivation for the act. And you can see the whirring of his mind, if you could see a whirring of anybody's mind, um, it's falling into place of, of something in me that's not quite right. It's not externals that are affecting my view. It's this internal element. Um, and together, we'd hope with the working of the spirit within him, he would be able to start to put these jigsaw pieces into place in his own mind. The next issue, and again, it's probably more famous outside of Christianity than within Christianity, of, of chastity but not yet. It's said as a comical statement. It was actually a sincere statement of the state of mind of Augustine. He obviously was aware that he had a problem with sexual desires. Fact. His mother was aware, that's why she was putting off his baptism. I also suspect that the father was in a similar position, and I think that's what motivated the worry in Monica. That's my little uh, reading of it. Um, but either way, it was seen as a problem. If we go back to Tertullian's comments on baptism in the year 200, one of the earliest references that anybody makes about baptism, he talks about putting off infants, uh, children, to be baptised later precisely for these sorts of reasons. And in that same document, in the next paragraph, he invokes young men to put off their baptism until they are married. 
So I think there's a, a connection there in my thinking of this problem that they're seeing. If you're baptised too soon, you're going to stray in these particular ways. How are you going to resolve that issue? And it was therefore the obvious solution, or put off your baptism, you, you're bound to sin. When Augustine looks at his own life in this area, he's wondering, would it have been better for me to have been baptised earlier? And the effect of that baptism might have, in fact, stopped me doing what I did. So he was thinking around the subject in that sense. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the other point that I did mention at the time in the Creed, uh, the Council of Nicaea, the first great ecumenical council, 325, it contained a series of um, canons, laws. The first one that I drew attention to, because I thought it might come back into this, was that priests were prohibited from self-castration, which took me by surprise given that there was nothing that I'd read so far that seemed that this would be a problem. But when we look at Augustine's difficulties, when we read Tertullian, who was before Nicaea by about 125 years, a problem was arising. There's a suggestion, although not proven, that Oregon, the great theologian, might have self-castrated. The idea of the aesthetics, the hermits, removing themselves completely from temptation, for me, there is a sort of pattern, but it's just my speculation. That's where I've got... We're up to the end. We could go on. What I want to do now, just briefly, is to just give you a quick reminder of where we've come from to arrive here, the bits that we've covered Hopefully, it will give you a framework to position things, even if you've not been here every week, you'll be able to position these things and to use them as building blocks for further studies of your own. Again, I have to apologise for the brevity in which I've dealt with the subject. Um, I'm looking at texts that themselves have condensed ideas down and I'm having to make them even shorter. I hope I haven't done too much injustice a lot of these issues are well worthy of study in themselves, but time constraints and keeping your attention uh, as best I can uh, means that we need to keep it at a pace. But um, I try to give you the salient points of the people and the, the position so it fits in a sort of sottish chronology. We start looking at the Jewish background to the Christian church and it's forming of a template for the early Christian uh, church. Jewish uh, uh, evangelism, proselytization uh, by the um, Pharisees even, for a couple of year, hundred years before Christ was taking place. The Septuagint, the Old Testament in the Greek language, a couple of years before Christ's birth. We have the rise of the Roman Empire getting to its peak in uh, the time of Christ where the structure of, of moving around was made so much easier and there were a degree of safety there. We see this great expansion of the church, partly because, again, the, we talked about the Jewish diaspora going from the Babylonian exile times right up to Titus demolishing the second temple. The Jews were uh, spread out. Even during the time of Christ, it's estimated that some 75% of Jews were outside of the, um, 
Levant, uh, Palestine area. It's no surprise then when we read in our New Testament, which I would still argue as a historical document, not that it's historically factual, but the detail that it contains in the text is of great value, the history itself. Uh, often overlooked, but actually it's the best source for first century Christianity is that record. The added fact that we believe it's inspired means that we can put our full weight upon that text. We're told in that text that the apostles used the Roman Empire to disperse themselves. They didn't limit themselves to that. They, I think Thomas went possibly again over to uh, India. We don't know that as a fact, but that's what tradition says. But that had been Hellenized by Alexander the Great any rate, so he'd gone over there. We've got this great dispersal at this Roman Empire about the 117 AD, which is the maximum point of the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, these men had worked in these fields. They'd also gone straight into the synagogues, these places that had already been dispersed, the diaspora, and they were either received or rejected. And I would say the synagogues that received them formed the basis of the first churches, the first practices. The next problem that they faced was persecution, both initially from the Jews, but then to a greater extent, uh, more violent, was from the early days of, of Nero, 64, 65 AD, right up until the great uh, persecution, which ended about 311. Off and on throughout, but they were in fear of persecution all the time. It's no great surprise that we don't have a lot of smaller writings from people. Documents were being burnt all the time, and it's amazing that the documents that have survived uh, the persecutions have in, in that sense, never mind the fact that old documents don't last. <clears throat> they dealt with issues like the, the Gnostics, this strange grouping of, of um, New Age uh, pseudo-Christians that mixed and matched ideas as it pleased themselves, um, created this new breed of Christian, uh, the, this is after the post, uh, the apostle period, of the apologists, uh, Justin Martyr, um, Arrhenius, um, these were men who were standing up and arguing against the errors that were coming into the church. We had the development of Tertullian and Origen, who both had problems with what they concluded, but they were making strides in understanding, and their work is still valuable as early theologians. Scripture was completed about the year in the first century. Um, although not everybody had all the books of the Bible at the same time. Um, the, the canon wasn't, in fact, finalized until 4th century. We also have the development we talked about of the Apostles' Creed that we use, and we saw how it was used from very early statements of faith that would probably have been used in adult um, uh, baptismal uh, classes uh, for the pagan and the... Uh, 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 God-fearers, as the, the New Testament refers to men who were sympathetic to Judaism but wouldn't undergo uh, circumcision. Um, we then have the great change. Constantine the Great becomes a Christian in 312. 313, he's making decisions on behalf of the church. Um, 
we have the rise, I've mentioned, of uh, Donatism. We've got the issues of the Trinity and the problems that that was causing. And that was dealt with by Alexander and then Athanasius after him. Uh, we have the creation from that turmoil of what we value as the Nicene Creed that we always date as 325, which was the date of the council, but we understand that later on it was more developed for the one that we use in 381. We just talked about, uh, we talked about the problems of baptism. We talked about the person of Christ, this development, and we've talked about Pelagianism. So briefly, what was the early church like? Well, it had humble beginnings. It followed on this synagogue tradition. Um, it centred on the reading of the word, such as they had it. It might have, in the very first instances, would have been that Greek uh, New Testament and the Hebrew writings, if they had any. It was centred on prayer. It was on the preaching or the discussing of, of the word. Uh, in a similar format, they would have had singing of psalms. Uh, they wouldn't have had any... Uh, in the, in the earliest dates, the New Testament, uh, any songs that might appear or recognised as songs in the New Testament wouldn't have been known because they hadn't been written yet. Uh, so you're following on this practice that was established in the synagogues. As we mentioned before, musical instruments did not appear for another thousand years. Uh, this was a church that was under persecution. So there's no surprise that we don't have a lot of detailed information about what ha actually happened in local congregations. They did rely upon their ministers and their bishops, we've talked about the hierarchy in that sense, um, to, to help resolve their problems. They did take to the streets and rebel when they didn't like things, even over some quite petty things. I think they had a riot in Carthage when the Vulgate was written in about 380, uh, replacing the Septuagint, and I think it was over the word for, uh, it was gourd, gourd or ivy. And they weren't, it was just an incidental word that means nothing to the sense, but they were apparently took to the streets. We also had a dis civil disturbance between the Arians and the Athanasian parties. They would take to the streets over, they took things seriously. Uh, I'm not advocating that we take things to the streets. It's just an indicator that they just weren't sat round thinking, well, somebody else will sort it out, and when they've decided, I'll go along with whoever wins. Um, they were involved to an extent. Um, within the period, we talked last time about there were two sacraments, baptism and uh, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, um, consistent throughout the, pay, uh, the five centuries of both infants and adults, and there was no real complaints or disturbance on those issues. Um, the later development of sacraments, which partly comes into this idea of, if baptism can only do this, what do we do for the next bit? Well, oh, maybe we can, you can see a development then uh, in centuries yet to come of the way that the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox have an additional five sacraments of, of specialnesses uh, which they invoke for uh, uh, carrying out uh, the necessaries. Um, yeah, the church uh, exercised discipline uh, and it had a structure. And we, well, we see that from the New Testament. We see the structure of, of discipline from the New Testament. It's no surprise that we see it continuing 
uh, in that sense. So that is me done. Um, I'll open it now if uh, anybody's got any questions.